on, everybody? Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of the Watch Report with me, John Luke Welch. Make some noise, get excited. We got a bunch of stuff to cover. I'm so happy to be with you all on today. My goodness, we have a whole uh, gaggle of things that we need to cover for you today. Deion Sanders leaving Jackson State University for the University of Colorado in a shock move. Tyson Fury beating Derek Chisora and where he moves forward from here, as well as the Golden State Warriors and their struggles at the start in 20 something games into the season. And why exactly is it that the defending champs seemingly are slow to get out the gate and show their talent? And is it deeper than we expect? So before we even start anything, first off, thank you for listening. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a like on the video. Comment your thoughts and opinions in the comment section below. Subscribe to the channel and share this channel with everybody that you know. Share this video with everybody that you know. We're trying to build an empire. Please, we need your help. I need your help to get the word out of this channel so we can make this thing bigger, better, grander for you, the viewer and listener of this show. Also, remember that we're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major podcasting platform that is out there for you to hear and to listen to my soothing, not soothing, excuse me, that's the wrong word, my exciting and passionate voice on all the happenings in the sports world and again please give us five star ratings give us all the works heat praise on us just so we can get the algorithms and all to work in our favor so we can become a legitimate presence in the sports world and we can build this community together but i thank you all so much for listening and without further ado let's jump right into the topics of the day and starting off with Deion sanders in a shock move that has uh, everybody either upset or talking about it. Deion Sanders leaves Jackson State to sign as a new head coach for University of Colorado in a breaking news level move. Now, before we even touch on whether it's right or wrong for him to leave, first, let's not gloss over what he's done being at Jackson State. This is a man who went there. Firstly, there aren't many high-profile people that sign on to HBCUs the majority of the time. That's just the case. Normally, they go to bigger and better things off the rip. But Deion Sanders signed with Jackson State. He did it because nobody else was willing to give him a shot. He wanted to be a head coach in a bigger capacity either at a major college or at an NFL level. Nobody wanted to do it because of his lack of experience coming into this coaching realm. Jackson State pulled the trigger and said, we'll give you a shot. We'll give you the keys to the car. Let's see how far you can drive us. And this man has, for the most part, done everything that he said he was going to do. He went. He was successful. And in and, 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 and multiple facets. Not just in winning. Let's break down those facts so people understand wholeheartedly why this is such a big move. First off, his name, being at the college, brought recruits just like he said he was. He wanted to change the culture and change the outlook and perspective of HBCUs in the grandiose of college football as a whole. Not looking at them as just, you know, black pillars, but legitimate avenues that players can go to and actively be successful and actively get their name out there as this is a viable line that I can go through to get to where I want to go, which is the NFL. 
He made that possible by his presence being at Jackson State. He had five-star recruits out of high school immediately committing to Jackson State or decommitting from where they initially was going to go to and then going to Jackson State from major colleges that he initially had a full ride to, saying, I want to ride with Dion and be a part of this new mission. Legitimately. Oh, and by the way, we see what the world's going on in Transfer Portal right now with him leaving Jackson State, going to Colorado, and all of a sudden everybody is, again, major athletes are right now in the Transfer Portal at a, at a rate that nobody expected it to be. Legitimately, people are saying there might be rules set in place within the next year or two to prevent this mass exodus just to follow one man. So he delivered on his promise of getting eyes on HBCUs and making it viable for athletes to go and say, I can make a legitimate way to my dream through going through black colleges. He made it possible. And then on top of that, what did he do? Gave his, a portion of his salary, about 50%, if I'm reading correctly, to re-renovate the facilities of Jackson State. Of it, again, mind you, this is of his own salary that he's getting paid for. Put that money, 50% of it, back into the college in order to get new locker rooms, new weight room equipment. The whole nine yards to not only make the college feel like something big for athletes coming in there, but also set them up for success with the latest and greatest in technology, facilities, care, all of it, so that they were well-prepared to do the final thing that Deion Sanders said he was going to do, which was win. And doggone it, this brother won. Combined all of his years at Jackson State up to today, this man has garnered, I believe, a 27-5 record throughout his entire tenure. Just led Jackson State to an undefeated season 11-0 and their first championship since 2017. So essentially a per perfect season, 12-0, capped off with the championship. Delivered. Three years of excellence. Two to three years of, of utter excellence that he's done for this team. And he's done for that school. You have to praise him on that front. While saying that, however, now let's look at the other side of the coin. Him leaving. The problem with Deion Sanders leaving is the fact that it wasn't that he was successful and, and dipped. No. We want athletes, or excuse me, we want coaches, especially black coaches, to have the ability to show that they can do something great, prove the doubters wrong, and then go about onto bigger and better things. And by bigger and better, I mean go into a major situation and they're getting paid what they're due. Going out and saying, give me what I'm worth, and they get what they're worth. Going out and forcing people with their production to have to look at them and say, we want you because of what you did here. And because people didn't give you a shot initially, now you got the right to demand through the roof and people are willing to pay. 
and give you your respect. We want that for coaches, and again, especially black coaches. So with Deion Sanders leaving, it's not a bad thing. That's what people have to understand. It's not bad that he left. It's not bad that he's gone. Well, I'm happy that he's at a better situation in terms of a situation where he can get even more notoriety and potentially have the ability to, if he succeeds at Colorado, open up the door for even more minority coaches to come in and say, hey, colleges are going to look at them and say, you know what, Dion was able to do it. Let's, let's see if you can do it too. Without having to go through all the rejection. In that sense, there's trailblazing that's taking place, which is phenomenal. And on top of that, he's going to be bringing coaches with him, and if they're successful and keep winning at Colorado, those coaches are going to be able to move on to even bigger opportunities to where they get paid more for the talent that they have. Again, trailblazing, phenomenal. This is what we like to see. It's what we need to see. Deion Sanders is doing a phenomenal job on that front. He's earned this. He has earned this. Say what you want about Jackson State's previous prestige. Again, when you're about, what, 26% of the titles in their conference? They, they got lineage. Jackson State is a lineage school. It's a staple in HBCUs. That aside, however, this brother came in and did everything that he said he was going to do. You give him his flowers on that front. Absolutely. Girl, you're not gonna, I'm not going to sit up here and say him leaving Colorado is bad or him leaving for Colorado is wrong. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. This is a brother that went, wasn't given any opportunities, went to somebody, again, somebody gave him an opportunity, which was Jackson State, and he get, showed them that it was worth them giving him the chance and succeeded. And now he's moving on. Gaining the notoriety and the respect and the money and the trust there are many other coaches with, again, the same level of experience, but are white, get right off the bat. Especially if they're a former NFL player. They don't even have to be a great, just a former NFL player. We see this all across the board. I.e. Jeff Saturday on the Indianapolis Colts. I'm not knocking them. In terms of, I'm upset that a man's getting paid. No, but we see the discrepancies in the opportunities that are given. Plenty of black coaches and minority coaches were available to be hired, interviewed. Indianapolis, what do they do? They go to Jeff Saturday. Now, granted, Jeff Saturday's a smart man. He doesn't know his football. He's been around some of the smartest minds in NFL history. Still doesn't change the fact that while he himself was a Hall, is a Hall of Famer in his own position, the man still doesn't have any experience, yet he was given an opportunity. While other coaches who have been 
in the NFL as assistants, winning, 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 putting their respective coaching position, whether it's on defense or offense, at a at the top ten in the NFL, helping their teams to winning records on a consistent basis, constantly getting he plays off for their ability to perform. Don't get those same opportunities, even though they have track record. So I'm not mad at Deion Sanders for leaving. And neither should you for getting the opportunity and taking it. Because again, he was getting paid, what, 30000 or 300000 for this year at, G- at Jackson State? Colorado's giving him $29.5 million. $5.5 million the first season. Base pay is $500,000. Top of that, $1.75 million for going on television. $1.74, well, one point, excuse me, $1.75 million for television uh, appearances representing the school. $1.74 for promoting and fundraising for the school. Another $1.5 million for developing the athletes, giving them the things that they need. Facilities and otherwise, and it increases every single year. Do 2024, 2026, and 2027. All amount to what? 29.5, about 30 million. Just about 30 million. Not even talking about the potential bonuses if they win and reach certain thresholds and certain criteria that he might have in his contract. Anybody would be stupid not to take the job. Granted, plenty of people. Bomani Jones said he would have taken the job when he talked about this same topic. He would have taken the job as well. Absolutely. But the problem is, with him taking the job, it's not that he has the job. That's not the issue. The issue is the fact that he left on one promise that he didn't keep, which was selling the idea of being there long-term. That's the one thing that he didn't do. That's why I started off with, for the most part, he committed on everything that he promised Jackson State. For the most part, he committed on everything. The only thing that he didn't commit on was the long-term dream. But Monty Jones brought this up too. The thing that Deion Sanders sold was that God said he needed to come down to Jackson State to make the colleges better. Great. Fine. And everything else that he was saying, rhetoric-wise, gave everybody the illusion that he was going to be there for the long haul. As in seven, five years, maybe even ten, consistently being there. And now, three years in, gone. Granny, again, he earned the right to leave. He earned the right to leave now with his production. You can't fault that. But what you can fault is the lack of staying true to the dream that you sold HBCUs across the board, not just Jackson State. 
People saying that he wasn't swag. No, he was swag because he was coaching there. But one of those, one of the arguments for him not being swag was because of the fact that he's not really with us for the long haul. Meaning he ain't going to stay here. And that's one of the things that makes this so not complicated, but so tumultuous. Because of the fact that the, the thing is, he shouldn't have left when getting everybody's hopes up that he's going to stay. Players signed for Dion. It wasn't for the HBCUs or Jackson State. Subsequently, Dion going there gave eyes to Jackson State and everything else that I said previously in terms of the benefits of his presence at Jackson State is absolutely viable and absolutely true. The issue is, at that point in time, it was only true because he was there. With him leaving, many of those five-star recruits may not look to stay at Jackson State. Many of them may look to go back to the transfer portal and go somewhere else or follow Dion to Colorado. Like a good chunk of the nation is looking to do. It's not that Dion left, but the fact that he left the dream. He did the work, yes. He set the foundation, yes. But he didn't stay to build it. And, and sure, you can argue. Hey, he showed you how to win, what to do, and how to keep giving. H or, or excuse me, how to continue across the board with HBCUs, building up your program so that you can make your place successful and make it desirable. Gave the blueprint, fine. Not knocking that at all. You still gave the dream that you were going to stay to build it. The foundation's there and the vision's there, but it ain't fully in place yet. It ain't fully established yet. Maybe 10 years down if he had stayed for a decade or even seven years. Seven years if he had stayed and then left, different story. Now you go through a complete class that stayed with you in college, looking to go to the NFL, boom, hot prospects, boom, some of them get drafted, boom, everything's right with the world in terms of HBCUs, and they get the notoriety because people got to the dream. People got to the league. They successfully accomplished the goal while being not only under Dion, but at an HBCU. But because he left early, in the midst of, again, players not finishing their tenure, players still looking to make a big name for themselves, because, again, the NFL is the ultimate goal, and you are the reason why they're there. It's like people go to Alabama, not just for the name, but because Nick Saban is coaching at Alabama. Or in the past, Ed Ogeron, coaching at LSU. People went to LSU not just because of the name, but because Ed Ogeron was at LSU, and he saw what he was bringing to the table. 
They were following the man, not the name. And while, again, he showed that he can be a leader of men to that front, being a leader of men means they were going to follow you, period. Because at that point in time, going to Jackson State, because it was a historically black, historically black college, while an incredible plus was a minor plus because the big plus was I'm playing under Deion Sanders. So you hadn't, they hadn't been an established thing where, again, like Alabama, I want to go to Alabama. Even if Nick Saban wasn't coaching at Alabama, I still want to go to Alabama because Alabama is Alabama. Jackson State may have a lot of historical significance and culturally and be one of the foundational points of HBCUs and foundational places. But in the grand scheme of things, in the way the HBCUs are looked at in the whole, it's not that big of a plus for many people. For the majority of athletes. Again, it's a discredit to them and a disrespect to them, but it is the case across the country. It is. That's an undeniable reality. I hate it, but it's the fact. And because it's the fact, the only way you could build that up is to make it so that your name, as Deion Sanders, rubs off on the school to where now they are viewed at as notable, separate from you. They hadn't gotten there yet. Despite the success, they hadn't gotten there yet. You hadn't been there long enough. You hadn't. It's like when you put something in the washer and the color may bleed. Yes, it will bleed. Onto the clothes, it'll bleed onto the whites. The red will bleed onto the whites. But even though it has the ability to, it's got to be in there for a certain amount of time. If you take a if you take the shirt, pants, or whatever clothing out the washer quick enough, the colors won't bleed. But if you leave it in there, the colors will bleed on to all the other clothing. And now, even when you separate the main source, everything else still has the residual residue of that piece of clothing being there. The source is gone, but the impact remains. And now everywhere you go, people are saying, oh, that shirt is stained. It's noticeable. You can't separate it anymore. The greatness of Dion coaching would have become the great would have become the greatness of Jackson State. And that would have been attached if Dion had stayed long enough. So by the time he did leave, what happens? Now, oh, Jackson State players got drafted. People, we're getting some names. We got a bunch of television time. We're getting a bunch of notoriety, and we're being successful. 
the legacy is now long enough that we can look and say, oh, hold on, wait a minute now. Let me think about going to HBCU. Because look at what he did for them. But the legacy isn't that long yet. Legacy hasn't reached that point yet. The legacy of Jackson State right now is just an historically black college for the majority of America. And not a place where you can legitimately reach your dream for the whole of America and for the whole of prospecting recruits. It was Dion that was the selling point. And it just so happened to be that Jackson State was there. Again, got them TV coverage, got them notoriety, got them news uh, sections in the paper, got them front pages on the paper. First Take was covering it. Fox Sports was covering it. Everybody was covering it. But they were covering it because of Dion, not because of the school. But if he had stayed there longer when he did leave, now could have been different. Could have been that that notoriety stayed with him. That that media coverage stayed with him. The residue would have still been there. But now, no, it's not because he didn't stay long enough. That's why people are so upset. That's why the school is so upset. That's why people are harping on Dion. And that's where it is justified. Because while you did everything else right, the one promise that you did not keep was the promise of the dream that you're going to be there for a long-term period. That's where you messed up. You sold the dream that you're going to be there to stay until the foundation is completely settled. All the rods are in place. Concrete's dried up. Everything's dug out and ain't nothing moving. Ain't nothing shifting. And we've had a whole draft class go in, go out, and get to the NFL. Or at the most, get some serious looks. Get ranked in the top 100 for NFL college players. Have our national championship game covered on multiple occasions. We get people coming to our school to do stories on us. First Take does their show here. College day day, college game day comes here. That takes time, and that time wasn't long enough for how long Dion was there. While everything else was exactly like he said he was going to happen. While all that happened, and that praise is justifiably due, the anger that's justified is the fact that he did not stay for as long as he was projecting he was going to stay. Again, the dream was not sold. Or rather, excuse me, the dream was sold, but it wasn't committed to. 
was a form of fraud. Because everything you did and everything you said made it seem like you were going to be here for an extended amount of time. Again, five to seven years, maybe even a decade. And then move on. You wanted to be in the trenches. That's how we sold it. He wanted to be get his hands dirty. That's how he sold it. He wanted to make it so that everybody benefited from his presence being there. That's how he sold it. All of that's going to take long-term progress. He said he wanted to take on big schools. He said he wanted to take on Alabama. He said he wanted to take on Clemson. He said he wanted to take on all these major programs. All of this takes time. He was on the road to getting there, but the problem was he left. He deserved to leave, but he left before he followed through on the long-term dream that he was selling. That's where the anger comes into play. That's where the hate comes into play. That's where the black community jumping on him is absolutely justified. Not because I'm upset or anybody else is upset at the position that he's able to get. No, we want to see a black man succeed. We want to see him be great at Colorado. I'm not wishing any ill will. I hope he does even better than he did at Jackson State. We want to see continued progress of his ability to move everybody wrong. He didn't give him a shot in the first place. Absolutely. But at the same breath, you cannot look me in the face and say that I don't have a right to be, at least be somewhat upset that you did not stay for as long as you sold you were going to stay. Because everything you were saying was, we're going to be here until we comfortably in the midst of the media, until we're comfortably in the eye of everybody, until we're comfortably stealing recruits from Alabama, from Clemson, from Notre Dame, from Ohio State, from the University of Miami, from every major school, comfortably, until we reach that threshold, I ain't going. That's how you sold your presence here. And you accomplished the recruiting. You accomplished the winning. You accomplished the media. But you only accomplished it for the immediate. And by that, I mean he accomplished that for the current stake in time, again, because of his name, not because of the school. He didn't stay long enough to the, so that all those accolades would be immediately associated with the school instead of just Dion. Because once it got to a point where it was associated with the school, now that's when recruits come and get stolen on a consistent basis from big-name schools like Alabama or the U or Ohio State. Now, if he then chose to leave, people are still choosing Jackson State. People are still choosing some of the other HBCUs, and we get breaking news left, right, and center of top recruits making decisions to go to other black colleges, not just Jackson State, because they saw what happened at Jackson State. They want to give other schools a shot that they feel can make their dream come true. That is what he sold. And that was a seven to ten year promise. 
if he wanted it to be fully complete. And he didn't. Again, I would have taken the job, but he didn't. Stay. Excuse me, that sounded weird in terms of the pause. I would have taken the job, but even with that being said, Deion Sanders did not stay long enough for the longevity dream that he was selling, the long-term dream that he was selling, to come to fruition. And now, nobody's even talking about Jackson State. Outside of Dion left for Colorado. That's it. Guarantee you, nobody's going to cover the school once the actual college season starts. Everybody's going to be covering Colorado. You're going to be seeing Colorado get more notoriety than they've ever gotten before. Than they've ever gotten before. And everything about that college was already set for students to succeed. In terms of money, finances, revenue, investing in the players, investing in the program, all of that, they've already been doing. He walked in to that school and they already had all that stuff covered. Again, not a knock. I hope he does great. But if he had stayed, they could have had a legit foundation that everybody could have been affected by for the better in the HBCU community, not just for Jackson State, and specifically not just for him. Because right now, it's just him and nobody else. It's not bad in terms of, I'm not hating on him for that. Because again, I want to see him succeed because he, many people did not give him the opportunity. But in the same breath, he has to know that he sold a longevity dream for the whole of HBCUs, not just for Jackson State, because his presence at Jackson State made everybody else want to come and see about Jackson State and inevitably come and see about all the other colleges, about every other HBCU. Give every college notoriety they wouldn't for work for for or for better or worse have never gotten before on that grand of a media scale nationally this is why it's so complicated not complicated volatile in terms of the reaction and it's warranted because we want our people to stay And we also want our people to succeed. For Dion, while he's trailblazing, and again, succeeding, he didn't stay. He didn't stay in a situation where for everything that he touted and promised to be able to be sustainable, He needed to be there for longer. Because he wasn't there for longer, this whole situation and all the good press and everything great that happened to Jackson State and the whole of HBCUs may get drowned out very quickly. Incredibly quickly. I'll be incredibly surprised if they get a four-star recruit 
on a consistent on a consistent basis now that Dion's gone. I'd be very surprised if ESPN talks about him ever again. Outside of this is the school that Dion left. I really do. And I hate it. But that's why this is what it is. It's the longevity that he did not commit to. Not the other things. Not the success. Because everything else, you can't say anything about Dion. You can't. He did everything that he promised to do except for stay. And that was one of the most important things. Again, we wish, I wish him the best. Hopefully you do too. But that's why this whole situation is absolutely so volatile and absolutely getting so much backlash as it is because his lack of longevity will make all of the progress that he's made at HBCUs and for Jackson State potentially relapse come next season. And we don't want that. That's why we're looking at Dion like we are. It should be for no other reason. Don't call him Uncle Tom. Don't call him a sellout. Don't call him none of that. Because again, he earned the right to leave. It's just the fact that the one thing that he didn't do was keep the promise and the dream of longevity. He's not a sellout, but it's incredibly disappointing and incredibly disheartening. And I have a right, and you have a right, not to hate, but to be disappointed, to be angry, to say, I want it more. Completely have a right to do that. Going beyond that, though, don't. Don't be calling him like some of these other people. Uncle Tom. Sell out. Say, how can you do this to black folks? Painting him as an incredibly bad person. Because everybody would have taken that deal. If it got offered to everybody. And many of them wouldn't have deserved it. He deserved it. But that doesn't change the fact that we have a right to be angry and critique the move because he didn't commit to the one promise of the dream that he was consistently selling. Did not commit to that. Didn't commit to that. And that's where you absolutely have a right to be angry. But moving on to the next topic of the day, Tyson Tyson Fury versus Derek Chisora. Defending the WBA title and in dominating fashion. Let's break down the fight and see exactly where he goes forward from here. So it's time, my goodness, to step into the ring. That's right. Ring the bell. It's time to start talking about boxing. Yes, sir. Without further ado, let's jump right into it right now. Tyson Fury faced off against Derek Chisora this past weekend for the for to defend his WBA title after coming out of retirement, after saying he was retired, then unretired, then retired, a bunch of backlash because of his indecisiveness throughout the months that we've covered. But he finally came back, 
wanted to, or excuse me, said he wanted to fight Usyk, said he wanted to fight Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua didn't take the fight. Usyk said he wanted a break, needed a break because he needed his body to recover. Understandably so. No hate and no harm on that. Completely understandable. I have no qualms with that. So Tyson Fury goes on and fights Derek Chisora in a, let's face it, a wipeout match. A match that was just Tyson Fury dominating pillar to post. Now granted, breaking down the fight, Tyson Fury didn't look great to start only because he's been out for about nine months to a year. Last fight he's fought was against Deontay Wilder in that capping off of a trilogy, one of the greatest trilogies that boxing has ever seen, ever seen, an absolute war. Been about nine months to a year since that point. Tyson Fury comes back into the ring, 34-degree weather at Tottenham Hotspurs Arena in their home stadium. Tenth round gets the TKO. Leading up to that, though, again, the buddy looking kind of rusty. Wasn't really bouncing around like we know Tyson Fury can do. Some people said his legs were gone. Some people said age was going to be a major factor. I assumed it was going to be because of the layoff. And once he actually got into the rhythm of the fight, boom, he would be more than likely back to his old self. And what happened? By rounds four, round five, Boom. Now he's starting to hop around. Dominated the fight before then. Derek Chisora coming in, leading with his head, trying to land a big overhand right after the jab to the body. The staple that, mind you, knocked Tyson Fury down earlier in his career. That same combination has caught him and put him on the floor earlier in his career. Jab to the body, leading to an overhand right over top that he doesn't see coming. That same punch has been a legitimate tactic that I've been I'm consistently going to say if he fights Usyk, that's going to be the punch that can potentially change the course of the fight. Because Usyk's footwork and speed, coupled with his ability to get inside, can potentially turn that one punch that Derrick Zora wasn't able to land and just hoping and praying into a tactical weapon that Usyk can use to potentially put Tyson Fury on the back burner, if not on the ground, in their fight when inevitably they go and they face off against each other. But once round four came into play, we saw Tyson Fury now getting comfortable, hopping around, looking like a, 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 a leaping sack of potatoes, an athletic sack of potatoes. That is just mobile as all get out. Hand speed coming in hot on, on Derek Chisora. Lefts and rights, quick jab combinations, consistently catching Chisora with a lead hook that was sending him back. Jabbing Chisora, sending him back, just consistently teeing off on him. Landed 50 plus percent of his power shots. 40% for the entire fight, while Chisora was landing not but 25, 26%. It was a great performance and a dominating performance and a performance that we expected to see from a caliber of fighter that, again, right now can be seen as, outside of Usyk, the best heavyweight in the world. And it, this is a performance that was supposed to happen against an opponent that is far and away below the level of Tyson Fury is now the should play the role of gatekeeper 
If not, I don't think he should be fighting anymore, to be perfectly honest, because he's 38 years old. This level of punishment that he took in this matchup was horrible, absolutely terrible. Teddy Atlas brought up a great point about this. It was better that he got knocked out in round one than getting stopped in round 10 because of the amount of concussive blows and just the ability not to be able to stop anything. The consistency of the uppercut that Tyson Fury was able to land on Derek Chisora just was battering him. Face swollen, messed up. All of it was because of concussive and consistent offense from Tyson Fury. With nothing being volleyed back at Tyson Fury that was of note. Nothing that was of note. And that, again, this is the performance we expected. If I expected nothing less, I would have been concerned. Then I would have said, okay, maybe his legs are gone. But no, he did exactly what I expected him to do. Just as sharp, just as precise, just as strong, still using the tactics when necessary of wearing his opponent down, using his size. Great. Phenomenal. No qualms at all. People say, oh, he didn't knock out Derek Chisora. Derek Chisora is one of the toughest fighters in the heavyweight division. His chin is well known. That brother is a warrior. This mantra of war fits his style of fighting. He just will not go down for anybody. For anybody. Him getting stopped and having it drag on is not a knock on Tyson Fury, but it's a testament to how tough and how much of a chin Chisora has on him. I wouldn't even say he's, he's, he's too tough for his own good. He just would not go down. And you tip your hat to him for willing, being willing to stay in there. Because him taking the knee or saying I can't go anymore would have been completely fine. Because of the punishment they took. But he kept on coming. Kept on going. Kept on pushing. Kept on fighting. That is the Derek Chisora that is beloved over in Britain. Beloved in the UK. He's, like they kept saying on the broadcast, a folk hero. And some people can view this as Tyson Fury doing him a solid and giving him a major payday on the way out the door if he does indeed hang it up, which I hope he actually does hang up the gloves. Because I don't want to see Derek Chisora take a lot of punishment anymore because now that's what's going to happen with the majority of these top fighters that are potentially going to be looking to fight him. Because now they want to prove they can take on the same track as Tyson Fury in hopes of getting to a title. Again, Chisora playing the role of gatekeeper. Now, at this stage in his career, after this fight. And I don't want to see that happen. I really don't. But in terms of what this means for Tyson Fury, afterwards, he called out Usyk. They had an incredibly entertaining stare down. Then Derek Chisora inserted himself into the mix and said, and essentially paraphrasing, we can get it on. Tyson Fury said, if Usyk don't want to get it on and can't get it on, let you and me have a go. And then they got animated about it. So now it's between Usyk and Joyce as to who Tyson Fury is going to fight next. Either to defend or gain an undisputed title. Or excuse me, either to defend his WBA title and lineal title or gain the undisputed 
heavyweight championship of the world from Usyk and take all the belts for his own possession or lose all the belts from his own possession. Depending on how you think the fight's going to go. For people that are saying that Usyk is an easier fight than Joe Joyce, you have absolutely lost your mind. You are stupid. You are ignorant. Because you've let the ability, or rather the illusion, of bigger is better cloud your judgment as to what exactly boxing is about. Joe Joyce, while as good of a prospect as he is, while beating Daniel Dubois, while knocking out, or excuse me, while stopping Daniel Dubois, while knocking out Joseph Parker, the man is a juggernaut absolutely consistently coming forward. But you know what else he is? Slow. Telegraphed. Predictable. Lumbering. No footwork. Absolutely no head movement. By the way, he gets tired by the sixth round. Like when he faced off against Joseph Parker. Who again, mind you, I had winning a couple rounds against Joseph Parker before he inevitably just got stopped and wailed on. Will you forget he was leaning on the ropes by round six and had to, again, he got some, he got a second win at round eight or nine, but a good chunk of that fight, once they got into the later stages, they were leaning on each other, holding, grappling. Wasn't pretty. Was not pretty. Again, Joseph Parker was using, not, not Joseph Parker, Joe Joyce was using his weight to lean on Joseph Parker, absolutely wear him down, which he should because he's a big man, but at the same breath and in the same vein, later on in the fight, he wasn't leaning to sap him of energy. He was leaning because he was tired. He was leaning because he couldn't get him out of there. He was leaning because he was winded. And Joseph, and Joseph Parker was finding success against Joe Joyce because of his speed. He doesn't have any power. I've said this in the past. Joe Joyce has an incredibly big head. That man can take a punch and keep on trucking, just moving through. And he's got some George Foreman in him in terms of the way he attacks, which is looping powerful shots that you can't help but defend against because if you try to evade and you make a wrong choice, it's lights out. It's lights out. It's going to be hurting. You're probably going to be sleeping. 15 and 0, 14 knockouts. You're probably going to be going to bed. This, that's going to be what you hear. And then boom, you're gone. That's Joseph Parker. He's got legitimate power, both one punch and concussive. But again, that power and size doesn't make up for, again, the lack of footwork. While disciplined, absolutely, doesn't move his head, can be scored upon, defense is suspect, is willing to take a lot of shots to the chin and the head to keep on going, is willing to eat punches so he can just consistently go forward, doesn't move or evade out of many stuff, 
is susceptible to the body, is susceptible to fast combinations, is susceptible to faster fighters. Again, is lumbering. So somebody who's able to actively move around the ring and unlike Joseph Parker, able to do it for the whole of a fight can give him some problems. And normally he's fighting against people that where he has the reach advantage. Now he's fighting against somebody where he's got to work his way on the inside, which again, he's not a great inside fighter. From range, phenomenal. He does have some tendencies to smother his punches. But again, he is disciplined to stay at range. Sure. But when it comes to Tyson Fury, what's he going to have to do? He's going to have to get on the inside. His range is going to be an infighter. And he is going to make a lot of mistakes coming on the inside, especially against the flickering jab of Tyson Fury and a deceptively stiff jab at that. You won't expect it to, to push your back. It'll push your back. It just looks so fluid that you don't expect it to have as much power as it's got combined. Look at Derek Chisora. He was getting shots that looked like they were just grazing, putting Derek Chisora off balance. And it wasn't because he was just hurt initially. No, it's because it, that legitimately was pushing him back. Joe Joyce is going to be an easy pick and fight for Tyson Fury. And that's no disrespect to Joe Joyce. That just, I understand exactly what's going to happen. Joe Joyce is going to come out, start out, be disciplined, try, but he's going, to have to, he's going to have to get aggressive to find the range. Then Tyson Fury is going to lean on him, lumber on him. When Joe Joyce does commit to getting on the inside, what's going to happen? Joyce is either going to do too much and use too much energy, or he's not going to do anything and accept the clinch. And again, use up energy. And allow Tyson Fury to get back in the range and not work and not do anything to make Tyson Fury second guess smothering. And then what's going to happen? Boom, boom, boom. Later on in the fight, Tyson Fury's up, probably four rounds to one. Joe Joyce gets even more. But now it's okay, throwing some big shots. And boom, counter. Boom, counter, boom, counter. And then caught off guard with an unexpected one-two. Tyson Fury's going to come in with some sharp punches, framing, holding him in place, boom, boom. Backing off, getting him in the corner, never letting himself be out of position. And then also he can make a decision from that point. Does he want to just keep on the attack like B-Ball against Canelo Alvarez where he keeps right at a distance to where Joe Joyce can't touch him and also he can't counter him because he doesn't have the punch speed to time Tyson Fury? Or he could just lean on in the corner and just use all 280 pounds of him to just smother him. And make it so that coming out, the, he now... He's not even getting punched, but he's still got to work not only to keep his balance, but also to get Tyson Fury off of him. That's a whole nother challenge in and of itself. And then Tyson Fury's going to go right back to circling, circling, circling. Boom, 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 moving on the outside. Boom, 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 moving on the outside. If Joe Joyce ducks, boom, uppercut. If Joe Joyce does one of those big looping hooks, boom, slip, boom, right hand. That's how it's going to be. The entire night. Because for everything that Joe Joyce has with him, 
the one thing that he doesn't have that is going to work against Tyson Fury to the level that it needs to be is or three things. Speed, timing, and most importantly, stamina. Just like we saw with Wilder, just like we saw with Derek Chisora, same thing's going to happen with Tyson Fury against Joe Joyce. Joe Joyce is going to get tired by round six, seven. And he's already going to be down. So now he's going to be, at that point, I got to get a knockout to win. And while he can do it, you also got to understand that Tyson Fury probably isn't going to go down against Joe Joyce because Joe Joyce isn't Deontay Wilder, who has, and I will keep saying, the hardest punch that the heavyweight division has ever seen. Better than Joe Frazier, better than Mike Tyson, better than Joe Lewis, better than Ernie Shapers. The hardest right hand that the sport has ever seen. Deontay Wilder has hit Tyson Fury with it numerous times. And Tyson Fury has either ate it or gotten up from it every single time. So I highly doubt that Joe Joyce has the power to put him down. Or keep him down. Even with him having a better punch selection, more fundamentals does not matter the one thing that got Tyson Fury and that's and that is why Oots is going to be an incredibly harder challenge is speed and athleticism Joe Joyce is another lumbering heavyweight John T. Wilder for all of his problems is one of the most athletically gifted heavyweights that this division has. Both foot speed and hand speed, purely. The brother will shoot off a shot before anybody can react. You got 43 or 42 other people that can attest to that. You have every single opponent that he's ever faced that's been put on the canvas. Do you understand that? For everything that we've said about Deontay Wilder, there has not been an opponent that he's faced that has not touched the canvas. There has never been an opponent that he's faced that has not touched the canvas. Not one. Every opponent that Deontay Wilder has faced has gone down at least once. And nearly all of them have gone out. And that's because of his speed. His athleticism and speed and explosiveness allows for him to go and just harp on anybody before they have a chance to react, no matter how good their reflexes are. You know why? Because they are all slow. They are all slow. All of them. Deontay Wilder coming in at 212, 215, and athletically as gifted as he is, can react and move quicker than anybody else can react and move. Purely off of just instincts and just athleticism with no technique. Joe Joyce, on the other hand, while he has heaps better technique, doesn't nearly have the speed necessary to beat Tyson Fury. Nearly. Not nearly. Tyson Fury is going to see that punch coming from a mile away. Usyk, however, when he faces off against Usyk, it's going to be heaps 
Carter. Because Usyk leagues better technically than both Wilder and Joe Joyce. On top of that, better uses better angles, has a better gas tank than the entire division, except for Tyson Fury. And will be able to just consistently adapt his game plan. His Achilles heel is that he don't take good shots to the body. Like we saw in the second fight against Anthony Joshua. Which if Joshua had actively used that exploit more and gone to the body more in the second fight, hey, we could be seeing a different outcome. But outside of that, Usyk's better at everything than everybody else in the division except for Tyson Fury. Or rather, let me rephrase it. Him and Tyson Fury are comparable as relative to everybody else in the division when it comes to Usyk. See, Usyk, and I've talked about this before, head movement, great. Speed, great. Stamina, great. Combination punching, great. Angles, great. Defense, great. Ring awareness and ring IQ, phenomenal. Can attack you in the corner. Will chase you down. Will make it so you can't catch him. Constant head movement. Constantly changing his dynamics and game plan. Level changing. Phenomenal at it. Everything is, he's great at. And he can take punches. Tyson Fury, while not at the level of Usyk, is still has all of that in his bag while at the same time being 280 pounds and six foot nine. Better talent. That's gonna that's gonna be that's gonna be the 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 fight. Better talent on Usyk's side. And great talent that's under Usyk, but in a super heavyweight body that we've rarely seen in boxing before. That's going to be the dynamic. Can Usyk's or Will Tyson Fury's size combined with his great boxing ability beat Usyk's excellent boxing? That's what it's going to be. And that is going to be an incredibly harder fight for Tyson Fury than it is against Joe Joyce. Joe Joyce is going to be really simple. Usyk, Usyk will can get on the inside and fight on the inside. Usyk can make it so that you can't lean on him. Usyk can punch and get out. Usyk can fight in the pocket. Usyk can throw in volume. Usyk can get out of dodge. Usyk can also potentially hurt you. He's got enough power, you got to respect him, even if you're Tyson Fury. Usyk can outpoint you. Usyk has great defense. Usyk is willing to go in the fire and can box with you at a drop of a hat. Can fight orthodox. Well, can fight Southpaw phenomenally. Speed in both hands. Footwork in both hands. Takes creative angles that many heavyweights don't ever use. Can't use. Because they're too big and too unathletic and too lumbering. 
to be able to use those angles. All of this is what makes Usyk an incredibly tough opponent for Tyson Fury than Joe Joyce. Leagues harder. Because again, Joe Frazier, Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Oh, shoot, big for that point in time was George Foreman. Mike Tyson, I can keep going down the list. Even a fat James Tony that implemented the skill set of, again, the Joe Frazier's, Joe Lewis's, and Tyson's and fighters alike in terms of being fundamentally sound and using everything that smaller weight classes use, which is what today's heavyweights can't do, became a champion. Joe Joyce doesn't have the tools necessary to fight against an old school style boxer like a Fury and an Usyk. Because they use tactics and they are equipped and built to be able to do things that of the past everybody else in the division was using as well in the modern day it's just simply about size and fundamentals and that's not going to cut it if you're Joe Joyce going up against Usyk and Fury size and fundamentals while phenomenal aren't enough they aren't enough If you want to go even more, more modern day, Lennox Lewis had it. George Foreman, when he came back, had it. Why? Not only was he fundamentally sound, what did he do? Got trained by Archie Moore, one of the greatest knockout artists in heavyweight, or excuse me, not heavyweight, in boxing history. 185 pounds was fighting at heavyweight, had 127 knockouts. One of the greatest KO artists that this sport has ever seen. Got trained by him. What did he do? Came back. Won the heavyweight championship again. I believe the oldest heavyweight champion. One of the oldest boxing champions in history. Do you understand? It's because of the fact that the tactics he was using were from a different cloth. And from a different era that was better Today's heavyweights don't do that. And because of that, you get people like Joe Joyce, who, again, you see the glimpses in terms of somewhat in their fighting style, but at the core of what they do, it's not nowhere near where the level of a Fury, of an Usyk, and of a champion, while those two have a belt, are able to do. It's not. It's just not. You can't tell me it is. Fury uses tactics of the old days. Osik definitely uses tactics of the old days. You don't see heavyweights fighting like middleweights anymore because they're all too big and too lumbering. They don't train the footwork like they should. They don't have the ability to use the footwork like they should. They have been trained to use their size as their main ability. But that's not what it's going to take to be champion. 
It's not. Bygone eras of boxing and the tactics and the mentality and the abilities that they had and used in fights were not predicated on size, but off of understanding the sport. Right now, what you're seeing in a lot of heavyweight matches are top-level knowledge of the sport. Fundamental knowledge. Not the in-depth abilities to be able to fight like middleweights, lightweights, banterweights. That's what heavyweight boxing is supposed to be. Showbiz the adult said this phenomenal phrase on one of his shows. Go check him out if you can. Heavyweight boxing at its best should be, of course I'm paraphrasing what he said, but it should be heavyweights fighting like middleweights. Big people with knockout power in either hand. That fight can end at any moment, but they're fighting in a manner like people smaller than them. You should be looking and say, no big man should be using tactics like that and moving like that at the size that he is. That's what it should be. Not just gawking at the power, but the technique. The technique has been lost on a lot of these heavyweights. Fundamentals are there, but technique isn't. And technique isn't just fighting styles. It's stamina. It's understanding angles. It's understanding how to adapt. It's being able to win a fight in multiple ways. That's what heavyweight boxing should be. That's what Usyk brings. That's what Fury brings. It's not what Joe Joyce brings. As Again, not discrediting him. I do think he's a good heavyweight. But I understand the levels. And these levels, everybody's getting confused just because they're desperate for action. Mm-mm. There's levels to this. And Joe Joyce ain't on that level, even for as good of a prospect as he is. Not on that level. Usyk on that level. And to be perfectly honest, I hope Usyk wins the fight. Not because I want to see Tyson Fury lose, because I want to see him fighting for a number of years, like he says that he wants to fight. Because now he's changed his tune and said he wants to fight until somebody beats him. Hopefully, even if he does lose, he still fights for longer. But I want Usyk to win because of the fact that I want people to start copying his style of fighting so that we get more heavyweights like a Joe Lewis, like a Frazier, like an Ali, who have all the great tools at their disposal. Like a Willie, not, not Willie Pep, excuse me, George Joe Walcott, like an Archie Moore. Those like a Floyd Patterson. These fighters are fighting today are missing that. Like a Ken Norton. Not being as big, but being able to fight with the tactics of middleweights. 
great head movement. Also being able to grapple on the, and fight on the inside. Also being able to fight on the outside and move and dodge and slip. Being able to throw combinations for 12 rounds, not just for half the fight before having to resort to one punch desperation throws because you don't have the stamina to keep it up. That's what I'm looking for in my heavyweights. That's what Usyk brings. That's what Tyson Fury brings. It's not what Joe Joyce brings. Again, he's a great, good heavyweight. In terms of prospects, he's up there. Absolutely. Should be considered top 10 heavyweight. Absolutely. Should get a title shot. Absolutely. But I also understand where the level that he actually is, not just in the numbers, but in ability. And he's here trying to fight up here. And today, in today's landscape, this gap is deemed worthy of a title shot. And that shouldn't be the case. Because the fights and the fighters should be closer. Because the fighters should be bringing more to the table than just size. To quote Anthony Joshua, I'm 18 stone, 6 foot 4. Well, that doesn't matter. Because to be perfectly honest, somebody 5'11", 205, like Joe Frazier, could have, would have whooped Anthony Joshua. Ali, 6'2", was it 215? Whooped Anthony Joshua. Mike Tyson, whooped Anthony Joshua. Jersey Joe Walcott, whooped Anthony Joshua. Shoot, Archie Moore could have had a shot to take out Anthony Joshua at 185. All points. Strictly because of his, again, talent. You bump him up to 205, we're talking about a different animal. Mind you, Archie Moe was 185 fighting people 215, 220, 230. That's what you have to understand. When people talk about smaller heavyweights of the past, or they couldn't compete with bigger heavyweights of today, these people were fighting 185, 190, 200, 215, fighting against people, 220, 230, 240, 6'4", 6'3", 6'5". Many people called him tomato cans at those heights because they couldn't do nothing to the caliber of what the smaller heavyweights could do. We had both fundamentals and incredibly dynamic tactics at their disposal, as well as the ability to use footwork angles, reach distance, and dexterity that the big heavyweights just couldn't do. Usyk and Fury is the fight that I want to happen. Joe Joyce and Fury, I would love to see happen, but not before or not nowhere near the, the, the anticipation of Usyk versus Fury. Because that is the fight to see. And that's the harder fight. Not Usyk. Or excuse me. Not Joe Joyce versus Tyson Fury. Absolutely not. Understand the levels. Understand the history of the sport. So you can further understand 
why the gap is as big as it actually is. But for the final topic of the day, as we move on to close out the show, the Golden State Warriors right now are struggling mightily in their ability to actively win, coming off of being champions. This whole season has been up and down, not just for the Lakers, not just for the entire league, but for Golden State specifically. This team has just lost to the Pacers, 112 to 104. Right now, they're 10th in the standings in the West, 12 and 13 on the year, barely above 500. What the world is going on? What the world is going on with the Lakers? Not Lakers, with the Warriors. We've seen Steph Curry have some phenomenal games, but right now, his own greatness isn't enough. And it's drawing some concern. But why? Why is that the case? Well, I'll tell you why that's the case. And it shouldn't be a big surprise. What have the Warriors been known for over these over this dynasty-driven era that they've been in? Many people would say three-point shooting, as you probably said to yourself. And you know what? You would be right. But you would also be wrong. Because it's not just three-point shooting. It's three-point shooting and defense. And what's happening right now, this team is not a great defensive team. It's not. What they lacked in size, they made up for in consistent defensive pressure. Great defensive ability. Again, last year they were one of the, great, the best defensive teams in the league. If not the best defensive team in the league. Them and the Celtics. And they've been like that every time they won a championship. People keep saying, no, just have size on them. No, you can't just have size on them. Because they're able to rotate, double, play passing lanes, cut off passing lanes. On-ball defense, they're great. Switching, they're great. Rotating and getting back to a point where they're not scrambling out of position. Always great on it. Couple that with a multi-time defensive player of the year. They're phenomenal. But this season is not the case. This team is a... is They're bad. They are they are so bad defensively. They're so bad defensively. And ain't just Draymond Green not being as great as he once was on defensive end. It's not. It's, it's not. It's also Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson, ever since that, the injury, has never been the same in terms of his ability to play defense. Never been the same. And now it's starting to show egregiously because of it's not covered up by his insane shooting ability. It normally always shows. Again, struggling to hit threes, averaging what, 17 points a game, where he's only 21, 22, 23 point per game score. Isn't stretching the floor like it normally is. And on top of that, can't defend like he once could. The defense is now being further exposed. Don't forget the fact that people like Kaminga and Moses Moody are not progressing to the level that they should be. They, they're not, as much as I love Kaminga, as much as I really like Moses Moody, I like Kaminga more than Moses Moody, but I like both of them. They're not developing at the rate that they should be, both defensively and offensively. 
And now you got who? James Wiseman back at, getting sent back to the G League for a time. I believe he's back. He may not even be back in the lineup. I can't remember this, at this current moment in time. But the point is, last season may have been the last vapors of the Warriors as we know it today. Or as we've been knowing them. Because it might be time that we need to look at it and say, hey, some changes need to be made. You might have to look at some changes and say, hey, things got to be shifted in some form or fashion. Because now, I don't think we have it anymore. I now, again, I'm not trying to, I know exactly how that sounds. I know exactly how that sounds. I know exactly how that sounds. Let's pump the brakes. I'm not trying to jump the gun and say, oh yeah, blow it up entirely. No. What I am saying is, free agency's coming up. Draymond Green and his contract probably won't be re-signed next year. There may be opportunities to make some moves to get slightly older players, or excuse me, make some moves to put some better players on the lineup to potentially replace Klay Thompson if we see that, okay, this is now what Klay Thompson is as a player. And this is now what Draymond Green is as a player. No longer are they the same all-stars that we know them as. And it may be time to switch and shift. Very well could happen. It's not out of the question. Nowhere near out of the question. Now, can their defense get better? Absolutely. Will it? That's where the question really lies. Because defense, while it is an individual commitment for every player, also understand defense is a chemistry-driven concept. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I know. I know. Shocking to say. <laughs> shocking to say. But defense is a it is it, it is a chemistry-driven concept. No matter how good you are defensively individually, everybody's got to be able to stop everybody if you want to have a good defensive possession. You want fast break opportunities, everybody has to rotate. If you want to not get left on an island, everybody has to be ready to send help defense. Everybody's got to be able to spot their man. Everybody's got to be aware of what's getting ready to happen and communicate to the other players as to what is happening if they're not aware of it. And everybody's got to react in unison. That is chemistry. And for a number of years, this team has had one of the best chemistry-driven defenses in the league. Absolutely. But now, has that chemistry been disrupted? And is it because of Draymond Green? See, initially at the start of the season, I was like, okay, hey, yeah, they've, they've, they've sewed up everything. Everything's all good. The punch didn't make a big impact. Maybe it did more than we let on. Or rather, more than we were let on. Maybe that punch by Draymond Green on Jordan Poole did something while on the immediate surface. It was not noticeable. But as time went on, now we're starting to see it. Now we're starting to, 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 to look at the source and say, was that a factor? It's like when you get cracks under the ice. 
when you're skating. You may not notice it in the immediate. But at some point in time, the ice seems a little shaky. And you may have given that the slight misstep that you had when you initially got on the ice caused a micro fracture that bled under the ice. And it's been cracking all this time. You just didn't recognize it up until now was a noticeable problem. Now you start you starting to see cracks up on the surface. And you're trying to figure out how they got there. That's what this Draymond Green punch potentially could have had. Again, could it just be storyline? Maybe so. But again, defense requires full trust from everybody that you're going to back me up. That punch may have broken that trust. In some cases, everything gets righted up and and it's fine. In others, many oftentimes, trust is never the same. And when trust isn't the same, coupled with superstars aging, coupled with players not developing as quickly as they should, coupled with bench production not being up to par, coupled with your your defensive anchor not being as defensively great as he normally is, and your defensive anchor being the problem as to why this chemistry is messed up in the first place, it's not out of the question to ask, was that the source? Are we now seeing the fruits of the, are we now seeing the ripple effects of the punch? Are we now seeing the damage from the punch happen later on in the fight? <laughs> to, to, to go off of boxing terminology. Is that shot to the liver, or in this case, shot to the head, finally starting to take effect? We didn't notice it until, because it was being masked, but now are we starting to see that punch have a real impact on the fight? And in this fight, we're talking about Golden State season? It's a legitimate question. Like I said with every question, though, wait until the All-Star break. Clay Thompson could just be having a, 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 a long period. Kaminga and Moses Moody could very well come up clutch and become a phenomenal duo and, a, and, a, and again, live up to the young core that we think the Warriors are going to have. Very well could happen. It also very well couldn't happen. All these things are going to be yet to be seen up until the all-star break comes into play. At that point, the halfway point, but if we see that this is still coming up clutch, and by coming up clutch, I mean that punch is coming up clutch in its impact and messing up the entire dynamic of this team, Look out for some changes. Look out for some changes. I'm not saying the dynasty is going to be gone, but the days of the Warriors running the league may be coming to an end starting this season. Because right now, everything's out of whack. Everything's out of whack for this team. 
teams that they should beat, they aren't beating or having close games with, teams that they shouldn't beat or handling business, it's like, and coming into the season, there wasn't supposed to be a team that we say they should not beat. Now we're saying that there are teams they shouldn't beat, like the Bucks, the Nuggets. New Orleans Pelicans. Right now, all these teams and shoot, they don't if they don't write the ship, we might be saying the Lakers are a team that they should not be. Come to the All-Star break. If this stuff keeps trending, both how the Lakers are going up and how the Warriors are going down. That is the case. Looking for some changes to be made. But, oh, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be, and I can't wait to see it. But this has been, as we close out the show, another episode of The World Report. Clap it up for you lot listening. Yes, it was a phenomenal time. I'm so glad you got to see and listen in onto the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please, again, remember, if you're on YouTube, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, leave a like on the video, comment your thoughts and opinions, and share, share, share with everybody that you know, as well as we're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, every major podcasting platform. Leave reviews and comments. Give us five stars, and let's help build this empire across all platforms so we can make this thing truly great. And made this show better for you, the listener and the viewer. So again, this has been the Welch Report. I've been your host, John Grouch. You've been beautiful. You've been wonderful. Peace and love. We are out of here. <laughs>